Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello, this is Everything Else, the culture podcast from the Financial Times. Each week we discuss the things we're excited about and you should know about. And in a week dominated by the president-elect, or the new president, depending on when you're listening, we can promise you half an hour blissfully free of US politics. I'm Griselda Murray-Brown, and usually I'm joined by my co-host, John Sunya, who this week is giving the podcast his full support from a beach in India. Fingers crossed he'll be back next week. On this episode, you're going to hear from Wayne McGregor, one of the most inventive and influential choreographers working today. But before that, we're going to be exploring the state of new music. Did pop itself die along with David Bowie last year, or is it in fact constantly reinventing itself? I'll be putting these questions to the FT's pop critic, Ludovic Hunter-Tilney, and to the paper's former arts writer, Peter Aspden. Ludo, I'm going to start with you. Uh, you wrote a piece which was published a couple of a couple of weeks ago, in which you said the felling of four major figures from several different eras of music gave the impression of an entire tradition under threat. And I wondered, as along with the, the deaths of Bowie, Prince, Leonard Cohen, George Michael that we had last year, do you think that pop itself has kind of died a death? Uh, well, Griselda, to, to take a roundabout route, not too roundabout, but a roundabout route towards the answer to that, or what I think might be the answer to that, I have to say that I, when I began writing about pop music for the FT in 1997, having taken over from my fellow guest Peter, I little thought that I would sort of end up becoming a trained obituarist, but that is what I basically have become over the years. They've mounted up, and 2016 was a sort of... The Grim Reaper's work really was such that, you know, I found myself, you know, doing a lot of these. The point was that throughout this sense of mortality has been looming over music. And it felt as if in 2016, with the deaths of these four major figures in music, that some sort of metaphor had actually become real and that something had ended. And in a way, something had ended. The way in which we experienced music in the past was over, gone. Yet at the same time, obviously, pop music has not finished and does continue and continues to command this sort of large mass audience. And it strikes me that death of its demise is extremely exaggerated and has to be disentangled from our sort of mourning these great figures who have helped build it into what it is today. Peter, I know that you have a slightly different feeling about pop and about there having been a golden age of pop and that it's it's not now. What, what would you say about yeah, that? I think there are three important reasons why I think the pop music in which I grew up and, and you know, I of course I agree with Ludo that we all look back on our youth in a certain way and that pop music is essentially music for young people. The, the energy, the evanescence of it appeals to young people, not to people of my age. I'm old enough to remember the 1960s, so that gives you some clue where I'm coming from. I think there are three important reasons. One is the sense of formal innovation. It just relentlessly moved forward. It was a young genre, and that was an incredibly exciting thing. Secondly, the popularity of popular music. It was everywhere. Top of the Pops was an important weekly event. 
the number one record was an important weekly event. And now we have this kind of splintering of audiences. Exactly, exactly. Which, which so it was didn't this ubiquity, then. it was everywhere. And then, of course, the 1960s was one of the most important decades in history because of civil rights, because of feminism, because of the way the world changed. And this was that era's soundtrack. So there was a kind of organic correlation between the music, the things that were happening, one fed off the other. And that was also incredibly exciting. To take this point of kind of innovation, I mean, Lida, I would imagine that you would say that that pop now is a kind of constantly innovating, constantly reinventing itself. Do you think that we're seeing as much sort of newness and innovation in pop Well, in terms of taking things forward, I think we then have to ask ourselves about where the pop music of the era that Peter is talking about really took us. It's interesting, to say the very least, to be discussing this in 2017 with a a Trump presidency and Brexit underway, neither of which were voted for by the young people of either country, who would be legitimate for them to ask, well, where did the 60s lead? Where did all of these changes of this epochal decade, what have we been left with? So in terms of that, I think that the music does continue changing, but it changes in different ways and ways in which it's harder to recognise than the way in which we think of innovation as being like Sgt Pepper or Revolver or Pet Sounds. I think now the innovation is partly to do with delivery. When you look at the popularity of pop stars now, six out of the top 10 Twitter accounts in terms of being followed are pop stars. I think musically, yes, innovation happens there partly because of the technology, which is far and so far in advance of 40 years ago. Yeah, I'm interested in this, in this point about technology and kind of how the technology of the time sort of comes to characterise the sound of, of that time. In the 80s, we had kind of synthesizers and drum machines and things, and that is very clearly defined as being from that period. Do either of you have a sense of kind of what today sounds like? How are we going to look back on it and... It's called grime, I believe. Um, uh, <laughs> we, we can come to talk about grime. Well, there's yeah. a myriad of sounds, isn't there? I mean, it's very eclectic. There are production trends which are recognisable, and the production trends of today will be recognisable in 20 years' time. I mean, that's kind of a natural part of it. And in that sense, yes, pop is evolving with quite a lot of retro looks. I think. Well, I think that the producer's role has become important once again. This is one of the sort of great battles, rather like in the theatre, it goes between actors and directors. In pop music, it can go between producers and performers, if you like. And at the moment, the producer, surrounded by the banks of technology in the studio, that when you listen to music now, the depth of texture is remarkable. Just when your ear begins to get attuned to it. If you listen to someone like Drake, it's just got loads going on. It's very sophisticated it's because really sophisticated. of the And then you've have. got someone rapping over the top of it about how awful it is being famous, and it's a really confusing mixture. Also, one of the things, Peter, that you said was, I think you were hinting at, it's harder to sort of define pop nowadays because, like you said, we have grime, we have R&B, and these things are all kind of beginning to mix and quite sort of unlikely seeming artists are sort of collaborating we had the flaming lips with miley cyrus ryan adams covered taylor swift's album a couple of years ago justin bieber and skrillex are doing things together all these kind of people who you just wouldn't imagine even being in the same room are suddenly sort of making music together and there is this sort of blurring of sound and kind of genre and i think if i ask people my age and and obviously younger they don't necessarily say, you know, I like rock or I'm a goth because those distinctions don't exist in the same way now, I don't think. And that's a good thing and it's an interesting thing and it's a creative thing, but it doesn't have the sheer impact of those movements. You know, when punk happened, it seemed like it happened overnight. Suddenly people who were in denims and long hair put bin liners on and had, you know, it was... And and the music, you know, I remember very clearly listening to the first Clash album and having that proverbial... What is this? I don't understand this. 
at all and taking a long time to come to terms with it. So those kind of challenges that were thrown to us as consumers was a very kind of bracing thing. You know, you were never quite sure where it was going. I don't see very much of that now, but but what I do know is that it's not in the national consciousness in the yeah. way that those things were. Sure, and that might be to do with this kind of splintering of audiences, as we say. Yeah. I mean, grime has been compared not musically to punk but in terms of its I guess kind of an ethos almost a sort of a general idea but at the same time my parents would never listen to grime they probably haven't they probably don't know what it is in fact this may be the first time they hear the word grime (laughs) I would never listen to grime either because it's it's just not for me I can admire it I can admire certain aspects of it but it's not my kind of music it's very hard to shock now in any sense I mean that's the other thing punk was able just by using a couple of swears, or even one swear I think we're looking then at things like shock as having a value, which doesn't necessarily apply the same. We're using an old metric to work out what music should be doing now. I mean, if for something like grime, to take that example, if you were a UK rap fan, you'd look upon Skepta, the grime artist who won the Mercury Prize with Konnichiwa. You'd look upon that moment as being as important as the Sex Pistols releasing uh, their debut, which even now, of course, I I prevent myself from saying on air due to the fact that punk can still shock. <laughs> I mean, yeah. music does still it have the capacity to do this. Yeah. I think that grime, I mean, grime has been sort of very gingerly adopted by the establishment that was absolutely horrified by punk. Matt Hancock, the Secretary of State for the media, doing a sort of shout out to Skepta in his first official speech about music that he gave. I mean, these are... How Skepta felt about that, but... Well, yeah. I mean, but these are... The one reason this is happening is because of punk and the idea that you can't now be a government minister and go, oh, this awful loud music, it's terrible, because it's just like, they've got to look a bit hipper, even Matt Hancock. It's almost like the mainstream has widened to accept more kinds of music. I mean, I think co-option is a thing here. You know, the, 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 the establishment, for want of a better word, is able to cope with any of this. I would say, and I'm, I'm going to disagree with this or, and actually also agree in a really slalomy, sort of Lionel Messi-style <laughs> way here, right? I think that one crucial thing about the way music is listened to now is, is basically the shrinkage in proportion of young people. In 1974, the median age in Britain was 34, and now it's over 40 fewer younger people proportionally in the country. So I think that the space, the cultural space that their music occupies is correspondingly smaller. I also think that things like streaming and all of these other ways in which music is experienced is increasingly a different way in which they are able to experience. I don't want to sound too ancient by using they, by the way, listener. Um, (laughs) I think we are going to return to a stage where you feel that it is quite different and that what the young are doing is quite different from what we elderly so there's a kind of polarisation happening I think at, at the same time. polarisation happening at the moment. The old way in which genres were rivalrous against one another doesn't really exist anymore. But I do think, or I, I think that we could see the emergence of a pop music which is really quite incomprehensible to those who are over 40, let's say. What would that sound like? I'm interested. <laughs> there was a very good book which was published a couple of years ago, or a year or so ago, called The Song Factory by a, an American writer called John Seabrook, which looks at the way in which pop songs are constructed now. And it's a return almost to the Brill building era when you would have teams of songwriters and producers constructing a song and then selling it to a singer. So it's a collaborative effort. So you have some like Rihanna has songs written for her, but they don't just get written. They get the parts of the song will get sent out to different people. You'll have someone doing the hook, someone else doing the lyrics. You'll have someone else doing the beat. You have all of these different jobs the factory is being done in an assembly line product and the end result can be very good it can also be very generic but it can be very good so i think we'll see increasing honing 
of that, which clearly by its nature can't end up with something totally incomprehensible. Although, as I say that, I suppose something like the Rihanna song, Work, where she draws that lyric, you know, I mean, this is actually, it's quite a curious song that. It's everyone's top song of 2016. When you listen to it, it doesn't... It's somehow quite dulled. It somehow sounds dulled. It doesn't sound like the sort of big chirpy chorus that you might imagine from a big pop classic. I wonder if we could um, come on to the second point that you made at the very beginning, Peter, um, which was about sort of social relevance and about, uh, you know, we've talked about sort of innovation in terms of sound and musically, but, you know, correct me if I'm wrong, but what you were saying was actually that the pop music of the 60s was integral to the social developments that were happening then and perhaps pop now doesn't have quite that same relationship. (laughs) Yeah, indeed. As Ludo said, um, look at where we are now with uh, the current political dilemmas. The 60s didn't work. I mean, I think we realised that quite a long time ago. But yeah, it's as I said, it was an exciting time to watch those changes happening. And a great number one song from 1969, Ruby Don't Take Your Love to Town by Kenny Rogers in the first edition. It's a great country-ish song, beautifully sung, you know, lyrically kind of so concise, which was about a paralysed man in a war and his wife walking out on him. Written originally about a, a true story from the Second World War, the songwriter wrote it with Korea in mind, but of course it was 1969 so everyone thought it was a Vietnam song. So it was the way that that music fed off the events, yeah, which was we, very exciting. Should we have a listen to that yeah, song? We sure. have a clip to play. It wasn't me that started that old crazy Asian war But I was proud to go and do my patriotic chore And yes, it's true that I'm not the man I used to be So that was Kenny Rogers' Ruby Don't Take Your Love to Town. Peter, it's it's, it's very restrained, isn't it? Very, There's a lot of pain there, but it's not expressed very... Yes, there is a lot of pain, very... exactly. And, and, and my definition of a great pop single is one where it just contains its own little universe. It's just you enter it in the first bars and you get out and you're somewhere else. And it's a story told beautifully, lyrically and musically. It has a fantastic ending when he walks out of the door and all the instruments come out and it's just the kind of drum beat it's it's just a beautifully produced song socially conscious music today this is the thing that people talk about isn't it ludo they do griselda yes and i think that there's um to find examples now an equivalent i suppose to kenny rogers but of a very different background would be u.s rap so kendrick lamar for instance to to pimp a butterfly a song which is all about the... the black experience in the u.s and black lives matter beyonce's lemonade her album of last year really sort of took the issue of you know race relations the the torturous topic of race relations in America and addressed that very directly for someone you know remarkably so for someone of her popularity so I think that it continues. It definitely continues. The Nashville, the Nashville side that Kenny Rogers, I mean, when Peter says about the idea of story songs, that's something that Nashville's always absolutely excelled at, the way in which to tell the lyrics of great thought goes in, or can go into it and the creating characters. And I mean, I think that's absolutely the case. But there are still people crying in their beers, I, I hear. <laughs> that's a universal. <laughs> that's a universal. Away. Even if it's the alcohol-free variety. Yeah. <laughs> this idea of... Um, 
music with a social conscience and with a kind of political drive now, like you were saying, US rap. But I think also we talked about grime earlier and, and UK rap. Quite often it's things that are drawn from sort of personal experience and Lemonade was a very good example of that. Beyonce's sister Solange also kind of had a quite important sort of political year last year. But the BBC Sound of 2017 poll was released recently and um, the woman who, who won that, Ray Black, is an unsigned artist. She she has a song, My Hood, which we'll, we'll hear in a moment. But, I mean, it's not, I guess, obviously political in the same way, but she's telling of her life, which, because of what her life is like, has sort of political resonance and, and says things about the society of the UK, of London, and more widely, I think. That, that's right. I mentioned earlier about the proportion of young people in Britain becoming less over time. I mean, at the same time, the, the ethnic diversity of young people has grown, you know, during that period. So currently, there's something like 26% of state school pupils are from an ethnic minority. And that's something that the UK music industry has actually been quite slow to sort of promote properly, I think. It's, it hasn't been particularly good at creating lasting black artists Whereas in America, it's rather a different situation. Interestingly, I think that this BBC poll actually sort of does. I mean, and looking at it, I was thinking it does actually reflect that I, racial diversity. Change. With the Grimes breakthrough came didn't come about because of the music labels. Most of them were either signed to independent labels or their own labels, like Skepta, for instance. It wasn't a big record label led event. The BBC 2017 poll has, has actually done 150 experts. We'll go and give their tips. <laughs> we all love the year experts. Ahead. Well, I, I, and I am one of them, although not a single one of my expert tips ended up in the final shortlist. Anyway, I think we see from this, this sort of uh, an attempt to try and uh, broaden the base for British pop. Okay, well, let's have a listen to Ray Black's My Hood. Socks and sliders everywhere and every day breakfast at a cafe not a cafe no no baby we don't let strangers come our way but you should come to my hood my hood my hood so peter i'm interested to know what you made of that song yeah, no, I like it. I think uh, I think it does create its own atmosphere. I think it's uh, it's quite poignant. There's a later in the song. There's quite a tough rap that comes in, and I think that's become a little bit of a cliche. The sort of Stormzy, lovely, soulful yeah. voice, and then the kind of get down to it. And uh, it would be a long way from what I'm trying to say that there are no good songs, and of course there are good songs. It's just that when we talk, I don't think we should be embarrassed about talking of a golden age. Because a golden age means a lot of things. It means a confluence of social factors, political factors, the fact that nobody else had anything else to do in the evening back then, whereas <laughs> clearly it's a very different case now. That was a kind of lustrous era in a way, I think, that we don't see today. Ludo, what do you think about that? About the song or about Peter's, about, uh, <laughs> Peter's, Peter's staunch defence of the golden age? About a golden age. Well, Peter, we can see, is in his hood here. His, his conceptual hood. And it's a very nice hood. It's a very nice hood to visit. I have to say, it's got some great songs, you know. It's got some wonderful albums. You can imagine him there, guitar out, surrounded by all of the old Neil Young records and the sort of Beatles. No one could dispute that that was not a great, great era for music. But Absolutely was it a golden age? And the problem with talking that? about golden ages is that other people will have different golden ages. If you're into hip-hop, your golden age is going to be the 1990s or it might even be 2010s. There's going to be loads of them. If you're into dance music, your golden age is going to be the late 80s. 
or, you know, etc. It goes on and on and on. If so you're there into, is a, a measure of subjectivity here. There's an awful lot of golden ages. And it's very hard to know sometimes when you're in the middle of one that it might be a golden age. Now, I'm not actually going to put my neck out so far to say that we're living in a golden age of pop music and that people will look back and say 2016, 17 was the era. But it seems to me that there's an awful lot of very good music made amid the usual mediocre and rubbish music, often we're in danger of ignoring the fact that the quality remains extremely high, the relevance in people's lives remains extremely high, and the way in which we can understand or read that relevance becomes sometimes murkier and more tricky. And we're going through an interesting time as well. We've talked about sort of the different ways that people are listening to music now and the fact that we don't all rush out and buy a physical album, that we stream it. And Ludo, you wrote recently about the music industry. And, you know, we all kind of hear about the death of the album you alluded to at the very beginning um, and the death of the industry even. But it's not doing so badly. Is that right? Well, there are signs of recovery. I mean, I think that in terms of the overall, the long historical trend is that in the 1990s, the music industry was earning huge sums of money. And that that level of revenue proved unsustainable. It was artificial. It was as if this... So to go measure it against this this peak, it's not quite right. And what we're seeing at the moment is having had the revenues decline precipitously, leading to all of these great fears for the future of the thing. Now we're seeing signs of recovery. So Universal, the world's largest record label, has posting you know, larger revenues last year. Streaming is the way in which that's being basically brought about. So they're being able to monetize streaming. Artists loathe streaming. They complain that they get paid 0.0000001 cent per song or whatever. You know, it's great complaints. Taylor Swift, we're going to yank all her songs off of it. And there's all of these great big power plays against it. But it is producing money for the record labels. I offer no, you know, advocacy or whatever of of that. But it is. It's it's creating some money. I find it kind of sad that the the, the amount of space given to to the medium rather than the message. You know, I think that's another possible sign of uh, some um, bankruptcy going on because... I mean, the way that we listen to music rather than yeah, the, I mean, the music the, itself. Yeah, I mean, the stories about who's on Spotify, who refuses to go on Spotify, who's come back in. We talked about those deaths, the 2016 deaths. That there's a reason why the whole country went crazy when David Bowie died. There is a reason. And also what counts is that Cohen and Bowie, both, I mean, Black Star and You Want It Darker, were two of the best albums of 2016, mm-hmm. both released by these people who were, it turned out, on death's door. And I think it shows that pop now is, if nothing else, is addressing the mortality of its stars. Mm-hmm. You listen to Bob Dylan's ghastly croning these days and, you know, he can feel death's icy grip, I think. Is that ghastly groaning is basically the Acropolis of voices, a magnificent ruin that should be enjoyed whilst we're able to go and sort of witness it. OK, on on that note, I just want to put a final question to you, Ludo, which is that what music are you looking forward to this year? Let's end on a positive note. I'm looking forward to a few favourites of mine, I suppose. I'm looking forward to Queens of the Stone Age, who have a new album coming out. I'm looking forward to St Vincent, aka Annie Clark, who has uh, just had a very high-profile relationship with uh, uh, Cara... De- Delevingne. Yeah, Delevingne, thank you, Griselda. <laughs> the millennial in the room will help Yeah, thank you very much. For uh, I'll creak on here <laughs> as best I can. And I'd be interested to see how her album... I think her previous albums have been superb, and I'll be really interested to see how her brush with tabloid fame has an impact upon her music. I am looking forward to Taylor Swift's new album, which I dare say hasn't been announced, but I'm sure will arrive in uh, 2017. Will it be one of those surprise releases that we see so often, do you think? Well, she's quite old-fashioned in a way, Taylor. She's a product of Nashville. She's a product of the sort of culture that, in a way, Kenny Rogers was a sort of... um, 
uh, epitomized. And so she's, I think I, I'd be surprised if she went and did the sort of Beyonce surprise album route. I think she's more wedded to the old ways of doing things. But you never know, I could be wrong. I'm sort of looking forward to you too, Songs of Experience. I didn't like Songs of Innocence very much at all. <laughs> but I feel that perhaps when we're talking about the moment we're in now and thinking about you two as one of the bands who do personify that sense of optimism about rock music, I would be quite sort of interested to see how they manage to keep that optimism. If Are they able to somehow sort of keep it going in the present sort of darker times? Well, on that optimistic note, I'm going to say thank you to Peter Aspen and thank you to Ludovic Hunter-Tilney for joining me. Thanks, Griselda. Thank you. For this week's interview, I went to the Royal Opera House to meet Wayne McGregor. He is the resident choreographer at the Royal Ballet in London, but he's not quite what you'd expect. He has spent 10 years or more there surprising and sometimes even shocking audiences, pushing boundaries and pushing the dancers themselves to the limits of their training. At the end of last year, I went to see a triple bill of works by Wayne McGregor, uh, three abstract works, which means they weren't telling stories. This wasn't like Sleeping Beauty or The Nutcracker, but they're incredibly beautiful, kind of thrilling, very emotional pieces. They had three scores each work by Jack White, Mark Ronson and the minimalist composer Steve Reich who'd done this new piece, Multiverse, which was incredibly kind of moving and quite sort of political. Um, Wayne McGregor's known for his quite interesting collaborations with different people. The architect John Pawson, who is another kind of minimalist, had done this incredibly beautiful, very stripped back set for Chroma, which is one of the ballets in the Triple Bill and was in fact the ballet that was Wayne McGregor's breakthrough for the Royal Opera House. He was also a research fellow at the Experimental Psychology Department in Cambridge, so he's very interested in things like cognitive science, artificial intelligence, and kind of where new technologies are taking us and how that can really change the dance world. So this is an exciting time for Wayne McGregor. He and his company are moving to a place called Here East, which is in the former Olympic Park in East London. And he's going to be there with lots of other different companies, which range from kind of science and tech to media companies. And at the same time, Wolfworks opens this week. It's a three-act ballet, which is a reimagining of the writings of Virginia Woolf. This is quite a, a big task, I think. I'm sure lots of you will have read Virginia Woolf and will know how knotty and complex this kind of modernism is. Lots of stream of consciousness, uh, interior lives. And Wayne McGregor's taken this and turned it into pure dance. I went to speak to him between rehearsals. Yes. I think take, take time. Take time, a little flash and a little flash. A little flash and a little flash. Lovely. Longer. Just stop a little bit more force forth. Force forth. Yes. Great. Wait, wait. Just a bit longer. Longer through the body. I'm not sure that there is a difference between ballet and hip hop or other dance forms in a way that what we're talking about or the central focus is the body and what the body can do, what is a physical signature. Everybody's body has a different physical archive. That's partly where you grew up, what kind of climate you grew up in, what kind of physical activity you were used to doing as a young person, your kind of emotional, intellectual influences over time. All of these imprint themselves on your body. We talk a lot in dance about kind of habits and what we're trying to do all the time is, what certainly choreographers are, is try to break habits. It's amazing when you can actually release in a dancer a different way, a discovery for them in the body that they hadn't really realised was there, this untapped creative potential. I never go in with a fixed idea about what to do physically. I think 
one of the beautiful things about dance is it's a real-time medium. So it's really co-authoring the material together. For me, there are kind of three major ways of working. So one is me going into the studio and having kind of a physical idea that I teach to dancers and everybody recognises that as a part of choreographic process. Another might be working with dancers almost as architectural objects to think with and they, they're in front of me and I'm moving them and working with them and sculpting them. And often when I do that, I do that through working with sound. So sonification, in a way, shapes action. Wait, yeah, a bit longer, Eddie. From a bit lower. I guess the third part of a choreographic process might be around giving dancers tasks, so a question for the body to solve. So you're not giving any movement at all, you might be giving an idea, you might be building some kind of beautiful kind of sonic landscape in their imagination that they then work from. I love those dancers that have that willingness to be that open because then your body can do anything. You know, there are no rules in classical ballet, although so many people, including critics, tell you that there are. And there are no rules because, you know, classical ballet is a kind of a contemporary art form. It's a 21st century art form that has to evolve. It has to evolve because makers, people like me, but many other brilliant choreographers are making things of their time. And their time has to communicate something of the richness of the way in which we live now. You know, I didn't really have a very artistic upbringing. You know, my parents are very normal in the best sense of, of the words. And they don't come from arts backgrounds. I went to an all-boys school in Stockport, near Manchester. I had quite an academic kind of upbringing. All my arts activities were out of school. If I was doing brass band or choir, I was a very kind of athletic, physical child, always wanting to do things. But that all happened outside of the kind of formal school system. But I guess with my parents, I say, I say normal in one sense, but not normal in another, in that they really instilled in me a kind of a sense of confidence and a sense of just have a go, just try, nothing can go wrong really. I, you know, would watch a lot of musicals and musical theatre. But then I saw those amazing movies, Grease and Saturday Night Fever. And I just remember John Travolta and the kind of the ease by which he was moving and the, just the sheer kind of joy in moving that really hooked me. And so I wanted to go for dance lessons. So at eight, I started ballroom and Latin American and disco dance lessons with this really amazing teacher called Marjorie Barlow, who's like a kind of a stereotypical ballroom teacher, massive, long eyelashes, loads of makeup. But one thing that was interesting about her, she was very against competitions. And in the ballroom world, that's often something that you do as a young person. She was very against it. And I think as a way of kind of keeping me interested, and I stayed there for many, many years, she let me make up my own dances instead of doing competitions. So I, you know, early age 10, I was making up my own rumba or version of a cha-cha, and I would teach it to other people in the class. I think dance is an inherently collaborative art form. You need other people to do it. It's a very interpersonal, very human art form. You have to, I think you have to be really good at communicating with people because you're trying to persuade them to do things all the time. And I guess for me, collaboration is important. I love to work with people that are living. So I tend to work with composers, not old scores necessarily, but I like to work with new scores. I like to work with visual artists who are kind of confronting the society in which we live now. I like to work with cognitive scientists who are using state-of-the-art science to help us understand better the relationship between the brain and the body. And I do that because I like people. I'm kind of a 
often a fan of their work. New technology has allowed us to see inside the body and the brain in a way that we've not been ever able to do before. And that unpeeling of the layers of understanding bodies just fascinates me as someone who's obsessed with the body. So if we can start to understand a little bit more about what's happening in the mind when we're moving, we can understand more about this thing that we call physical thinking. So if you think, well, what is physical thinking? You know, I'm seeing a, a kind of a cup of water in front of me and I already know how far I would have to reach out to be able to pick up that cup of water. I just know it in my body, how heavy it's going to be. I would know what my joint angle would have to do to get it to my mouth. The body is so sophisticated in terms of its intelligence. And if you think about that in relationship to dance, dancers are even more sophisticated with physical thinking. It's interesting, you know, why wolf? And I, mean, I guess I would ask, why not? I think it's something to do with the fact that, I mean, she had, a, firstly, a massive passion for dance and music. So actually she was trying to write as if she were writing music, but with words. And she loved watching dance because she felt it got kind of an immediacy to her that often words didn't do. And so if you think of a, a novel like The Waves, you know, you get a sense of this kind of poetic dance language. You get a feeling of it being pure music. I love the fact that it's kind of fractured narratives, it's multiple narratives, it's not linear. The visual images are absolutely phenomenal. You know, it's so rich. But there's something about the, the kind of the essence of Wolf, which I think is so analogous with dance, that it felt like a kind of a natural fit. It didn't feel like uh, jamming two incongruous things together. I kept thinking, you know, if Virginia Woolf was actually making a ballet, she would never just explore the plot in a really linear way. The three pieces that we've chosen to work with, work with Mrs. Dalloway, uh, Orlando and The Waves, and they're very different in feeling. So the first piece, the Mrs. Dalloway one, is a kind of a, an evocation of memory. It's You see relationships kind of emerge and submerge in real time, and you understand something of the evocation of that novel and how time passes. Orlando is very, very different. It's a very high-tech environment. It's kind of a gallop through, as Wolf would say, the tube at 50 miles an hour, pulled through there incredibly quickly. It's very fragmented. It's like a crystal that has shards that are flying off it. And then the final piece, The Waves, is part, part The Waves, part kind of biographical, part her suicide. And it's very kind of thoughtful, it's very long form, widescreen. It, it has this incredible projection of waves that are just lapping over time. You know, Wolf always wrote that she could never describe her own death. And we wondered if there'd be a way through dance that we'd be able to at least touch that or get close to it. I started my kind of choreographic career in East London. I started in the 90s as a thing called a dance animateur and I wasn't choreographing at that point. My job was really to animate the local community through dance making. So it was an interventionist kind of community practice where you use dance for kind of social regeneration. And I just fell in love with that place. And so when we were thinking about having a building and a site where we could actually do many of the things that we're doing, you know, we work with about 8,000 young people a year. So where is it that we can actually develop some of that? 
practice. East London felt like a perfect place. And here East, which is right in the middle of the Olympic Park, just sounded perfect. And that's where we're moving to, partly because it's a campus for innovation, technology, science, the arts. You know, so it's, a, it's, about, it's about a making community where things are made. And we're building these three kind of incredible studios and creative spaces for artists to come and work with scientists and technologists to think about new ways of doing things. And we're very open and free to what those relationships are going to be. I've noticed a lot of producers are often telling artists a lot what they can and can't make. They're kind of constraining what the options are. And I want all artists to be free. I think we all have a primal need to dance and we've been so normalised in society that many of us don't dance now and I think it's a real shame because I think when you can get in touch with your inner dancing self if you like, because I think everybody would be a brilliant dancer, it really takes you to a place which is of absolute euphoria, you know, it's kind of a release in the body and the brain which is not like anything else. You know, I was dancing a lot in the 90s during the rave culture, you know, and that was part obviously drug induced, but also part music. This incredible visceral rhythm that gets inside your body and it's perpetual and it's driving you to move and it keeps your energy going and you explore something really interestingly. So, you know, I've got a very long body, as you can see, and I'm, you know, very used to, at that period of time, being able to fracture it in different ways. So you wouldn't use the line of your body as kind of long form. You would look at the body more like kind of calligraphy or origami that's in constant folding. And if you think about music of that time, that's also what would happen musically. But again, you see all of the time, it doesn't matter what culture you're in, you, know, you see this absolutely amazing relationship between people, music, and what they're able to invent with their bodies. Um, and for me, it doesn't matter what the hook is, but that we just all need that kind of adrenaline rush. So that the more we can find opportunities to dance, I think the more exciting it is, the more, it's certainly more exciting our lives are. Wayne McGregor and his ballet Wolf Works is at the Royal Opera House until the 24th of February. Next week we'll be debating the nominations hot off the press for this year's Oscars. Everything Else is produced by Chica Ayres and I'm Griselda Murray-Brown. You can subscribe to Everything Else at all the usual places you find podcasts as well as at ft.com slash everything else. The tracks we played earlier, Kenny Rogers' Ruby Don't Take Your Love to Town is on the label X5 Music Group and Ray Black's My Hood is self-released. An album of Max Richter's music for Wayne McGregor's ballet, Wolf Works, is out on Deutsche Grammophon on the 27th of January. Our music is composed and produced by Fatum. <laughs>